Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Conspiracy theories are usually seen as cute and funny. That is, until they spill over into real life. Sleuths trying to prove Paul McCartney is dead, or that the moon landings didn't happen, amusing. People vandalising telco towers, or communities not taking vaccines, not so amusing. Dr Robin Caniford is Senior Lecturer in Management and Marketing in the Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Melbourne. Dr Caniford is also part of an international research team studying the spread of conspiracy theories online. He says that people are particularly susceptible to believing these theories during heightened times of anxiety, such as the coronavirus pandemic. The world's mass uptake of social media hasn't helped either. Conspiracy theories that once existed on the fringes of society have now been given a mainstream platform. Dr Robin Caniford sat down for a Zoom chat with Dr Andy Horvath. Robin, they say the information age is really a misinformation age. Can you please explain a term I've heard you use, which is infodemic? Yeah, Andy, it's it's a term that I'm not even quite sure where this has come from, but it's something that seems to have cropped up recently, and it's something that seems to be resonating with people. And I think the idea of an infodemic really describes the situation in which we've found ourselves, perhaps in the last few decades, where... The idea is that we are bombarded with more information than any of us have ever encountered in human history. And secondly, I think perhaps more importantly, more information than any of us can cope with. So with increased numbers of news sources and uh, unlimited data available through the internet, the idea is that we're all bombarded with almost any kind of information from any kind of source that we could ever hope for. And this is really a consequence of social media, and it's almost creating echo chambers. Well, I think that's that's been one of the the arguments. I personally wouldn't reduce it entirely to social media, because if we think about, let's say, national uh, news that used to come to us perhaps from two television channels, then, then it was four television channels, then there was all kinds of satellite television channels. So even the number of news programs the number of um, news websites, etc. Those have also grown exponentially, just as social media has grown. And and indeed, you're you're right to say that we tend to uh, select, or many of us select news media according to our own points of view and biases. Uh, One of the key things that psychologists have pointed out to us in recent years is, is the idea of a confirmation bias, which is to say we select information uh, in, in such a way as to confirm what we already know, confirm our own values, our own ideologies. And of course, this can lead to a situation where people only listen to information that, uh, that, that supports their own worldview, as you say, an echo chamber. I noticed some of the various social media platforms, like Twitter, are now introducing fact check. Well, the the fact check, I'm not quite sure sort of where this is going and the manner in which information has proliferated in recent years leads to a number of social effects. 
and one of which is the availability, firstly, of conflicting information, and secondly, perhaps more importantly, what I would call sort of bad faith information, that is information that's put out there for reasons of, of politics, uh, power and control. And certainly with a, with a platform based in the United States, uh, there's very little chance to shut down people's use of that platform, uh, obviously because of the United States Constitution and its various amendments. So I think that with this infodemic, with the amount of bad faith information, with many of the social problems that we face, which can be exacerbated by inaccurate political information of various kinds, I think there are various actors who feel compelled to try and take on some of the issues that spring up from an infodemic. Now that's difficult because this is a new problem, it's a complex problem, and we're only just beginning to understand, firstly, the challenges we face, and then secondly, uh, you know, the, the ways in which we can intervene to meet those challenges. It's a new area. Let's talk about conspiracy theories, because I know you like a conspiracy theory. How does it work? At the moment, we have a conspiracy theory about 5G towers and COVID-19. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, there, there's always been various conspiracy theories. I mean, this is nothing new to any of us. But I think one of the points that interests commentators at the moment is the manner in which conspiracy theories seem to have flourished under the conditions that we face in respect of the the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's all kinds of stories, you know, that this was started in in a lab in Wuhan or uh, that the one that we're particularly interested in with, with my colleague Tim Hill and Stephen Murphy in the United Kingdom is this idea that 5G masts are able to spread the virus and remove oxygen from the air, causing the symptoms associated with COVID-19. Now, what's going on? I don't think any of us are, are quite sure because, uh, and to answer that question, it, it doesn't really matter what's going on. What matters is that there are increasing numbers of people who believe that 5G masts could be causing problems. They believe that that could be a possibility. Now, that's, that's kind of what's interesting to us. So what's going on here? Why are they so tenacious what is the psychology behind it? Well, that's a good question. The psychologists tend to reduce this problem to the individual level, which is to say that people who believe in conspiracy theories exhibit a certain number of uh, personality traits, shall we say, such as, you know, they, they, they tend to like to contradict arguments. They're, in general, suspicious of information. This is an important one. People who believe in conspiracy theories tend to believe that there is a nefarious group of evil people, rather like some kind of pyramid selling scheme. There's, there's a small group of people uh, of immense power who are organising the world around them. And, and, and equally, people who believe in conspiracy theorists have been said to exhibit traits of victimhood, uh, a, a, an unwillingness to believe in evidence, a, a willingness to connect dots that shouldn't be connected. You know, this, these, are, these are the psychological traits of people who believe in conspiracy theory. Now, personally, I find this rather reductive because it doesn't explain why more people are turning to conspiracy theories at the present moment. 
it's it's important to understand that in addition to the possibility for psychological traits that knowledge certain kinds of knowledge flourish under changing social conditions basically that society is actually important in providing a more or less fertile soil for the production and and spread of conspiracy theories so my answer to to why this is happening now i think you know it, it would draw on multiple levels and and the first of those would be a climate of fear that people are experiencing now in addition to the fight or flight response that we know again psychologically as a response to fear I think one thing that humans tend to do is to make up stories, okay, to rationalise that which they are afraid of, to rationalise that which they can't control. We could call them myths from an anthropological perspective, or we could call them indeed theories. Okay, So people make up theories as stories that explain events that they find difficult, challenging or problematic. So in some ways, the production of a conspiracy theory is an entirely rational and normal response for a group of people to make uh, in order to to understand something that that troubles them. Now, the problem comes in, of course, is, is when we ask the question, what kind of stories are we making up? And of course, the theories that science produces to explain the current pandemic situation and the theories that conspiracy theorists produce to explain the pandemic situation are quite different, both in their form and in the content. Right. So there's a distrust of authority by the sounds of things. And it sounds like that there's almost a little bit of paranoia about who's in control but there also sounds like there's a real desire to make sense of the world to have an answer an absolute truth so to speak so is a conspiracy theory like reverse healthy skepticism and is it a distrust of the body of science yeah i mean that's that's there's there's a few issues to be unpacked in in that question andy and i think you're right there is a distrust of institutions. And in the way that conspiracy theorists are making these theories, there is some kind of proto-scientific method. But I think this this partly stems from, as you say, a distrust of scientific public health and government institutions. And in some ways, I think we can understand that. If we take the United Kingdom as an example, the SAGE committee, the, the, the group of scientists who were put together to advise on the response to COVID-19, remained a closed shop. Now, questions then immediately come about, well, why can't the public know who's on a committee that's making decisions about their livelihood? which I think is a, a fair and relevant question. That then introduces an element of paranoia. Now, couple that with people's knowledge that governments tend to award contracts to certain people, that there are conflict of interests in the world, that business doesn't always act in the best interests of society. And, and the word paranoia, I think, becomes too strong. I think, as you say, it's, it is a general scepticism of institutions and a questioning of the morals, values, etc., of those institutions. Now, that's critical thinking, okay? What we need to put this together with, however, and this is where the problem begins, is the way in which conspiracy theorists make up stories to explain, let's say, the popular one at the moment is that Bill Gates 
has commanded and controlled the pandemic because he is also producing the vaccine. So Bill Gates benefits by spreading the problem and then coming up with a cure and increases his wealth exponentially. Right? That's, that's one conspiracy theory that's going around. The problem is, of course, is that where a scientific theory would be always subject to contradiction, and then subject to what the philosopher Bruno Latour calls trials of strength. That's to say, we come up with a theory, and then the scientific community rips it down. And what's left, if it's strong enough, what's left will then be accepted as truth, in inverted commas. Conspiracy theorists don't do that. First of all, they see contradiction as weakness, rather than a strength. And secondly, they tend to believe what is compelling. You know, some, some of this stuff is fun. There is a, a, an emotional aspect to conspiracy theory that raises up um, our feelings of fear, outrage, and then makes us feel that we're part of some kind of secret. That's really interesting because you can sort of see how corporate and organisational criminality, when the bottom line drives everything they do at the expense of society, starts to leak into our news and it's a reality. It does happen. So you can sort of see how that can be taken even further. But you're right. Conspiracy theories are so tantalising. I mean, in some ways, who doesn't love a conspiracy theory, um, whether it's to laugh at or just get misinformed about and even question what's going on in society? But it's those that have a sort of dogmatic belief that that's really going on can cause other people problems. Um, we see this in the anti-vaxxers, which is of concern as well, which I think is a conspiracy, and I have to state my position on that one. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we can accept that you you and I are talking about this, where we do so from a, a distance point of view, and, um, you know, we, we are taking a, a fairly detached point of view to the problem. But the problem is, I think, when we get down onto the level of people who believe in this stuff. So we need to take into account that many of the communities in which these kinds of stories are spreading are indeed alienated communities, people living in post-industrial towns that are, are, are looking for some kind of reason to explain why life isn't going quite as well as it should be. We live in a society that... Um, Harmut Rosa t talks about this idea of accelerationism, that technology moves faster, transport moves faster, life moves faster, and we get a shrinking of the present, which is to say that we have no idea what's coming up next. That places people under what we might call a threat of um, lack of ontological security, a lack of knowing what the world around us is, is going to look like. And that sort of triggers people's fear. And when your fear is triggered, you, you look for ways to soothe that fear and if some kind of salve can come along which is simple shareable in some way secret that is known to you that that can make people feel good it's a it's a, almost a form of occult knowledge if you like and by occult i mean uh, an, an esoteric kind of sense making for alienated people now i think the anti-vax movement the anti-vax movement is quite complicated, actually. In some ways, I think this goes back to sort of a neo-gnosticism um, of, of, of modern hippies banging their um, shamanic 
drums around Byron Bay and, you know, trying to get back to the planet. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's anti-vaxxers who believe that the government is going to put uh, control chips in the vaccine, which then get injected into your body and, 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 and your free will will be gone. So we can't, we can't really reduce any of this. But at, at root, this goes back to an idea that there are a small number of people at the top of a power pyramid who are supposedly controlling the world around them. The conspiracy theory in a different format could be seen as advertising. We've all been done in by the odd advertisement um, that is kind of conspiratorial. It's a reframing of something that seems to speak to our fears and desires or hopes. Isn't shoddy advertising much like a conspiracy theory or clickbait news? Yeah, I think the shoddy advertising and clickbait news would be uh, second cousins of conspiracy theory um, <laughs> and perhaps the poor cousins of conspiracy theory. But it, indeed, I, it, what strikes me uh, as interesting is how many instances of, let's say, take the nutrition industry. So throughout the late 1970s and early 1980s, we were all told that fat was bad for you and food producers took out fat from food and replaced it with sugar. Now, more recently, the opposites come to pass and they're taking out the sugar and, you know, fats back. So this kind of advertising, which is connected to production cycles and the interests of businesses, is actually one of the reasons why people have such scepticism of certain institutions, such as those that relate to nutrition and public health. So indeed, the, the climate of scepticism, I think, has been partly produced by unethical business communication practices. And indeed, we can talk about those unethical communication practices as being applied to the political arena as well. And when voters are witnessing a set of global leaders, many of whom themselves are promoting what we can only call conspiracy theory, promoting cures to the virus uh, that you know, rely on bleach, for example, there is no wonder that people are searching for nefarious groups who, are, who they believe to be controlling them. There's no wonder that there is a lack of trust at the moment. And I think that is really fueling and providing the, you know, the, the, the fertile soil for this kind of conspiracy theory to grow. Is the solution to our education system understanding more about how knowledge is constructed and how science actually works. Whilst it's not a perfect system, it's one of the better ones we have that's able to actually say, you know what, we think it's not fat, we actually now think it's sugar. Um, it's, it's like as if perhaps the audience don't understand that alternative views aren't always equal and that if something hasn't been shown to be correct, it may be because the experiments weren't done or that it was done but it was inconclusive. Um, it's like we don't quite understand how to do observation and interpretation. Is that the key to understanding knowledge of the future? Andy, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, I've seen commentators suggest that the antidote to conspiracy theory is the 
fostering of critical thinking amongst populations. Now, personally, I think that's far too simple a recommendation. Critical thinking is always done from a point of view. It's always partial in some way. Science is political. Facts don't speak for themselves. Scientists are like spokespeople for facts in the natural sciences. And for that reason, the natural sciences, the social sciences, political sciences always exhibit contradiction and multiple explanations. Now, from the conspiracy theory point of view, those contradictions and multiple explanations are taken as a weakness and a sign that something isn't right. Whereas from a sociology or philosophy of science point of view, the contradictions are only a natural part of the messy process of getting science done. Now, if, if, if somebody carefully explains that to your average 12-year-old, that average 12-year-old is going to understand. It's not difficult to grasp that conversation, debate and contradiction are part of scientific method. But unless people are educated early on to understand that that's the case, and, it, and it's not a sign of weakness when scientists contradict each other and when, when things change around a bit, that knowledge is partial. I think unless people understand that, then these kinds of difficulties that we, we always face with making knowledge can be misinterpreted and they can turn into this sort of nonsense connecting of the dots where, you know, where the connections don't really exist. Is it important to study not just the uncertainty of science, but also the elements of pseudoscience and how pseudoscience constructs its knowledge? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, one of the things that uh, interests a lot of people at the moment is ideas that we might call part of a natural health movement. The rise of mindfulness, mindfulness med meditation techniques, breathing techniques. These are things that have been taken on by clinical psychology departments around the world and subject to the scientific method of double-blind controlled trials and, and, and so on and so forth to produce a body of evidence that suggests that these techniques can be good for a range of, of problems from, from depression to anxiety, blood pressure, etc. Now, at the same time, those same or similar techniques have been taken on by an entrepreneurial body of wellness practitioners who set up various courses, online courses, where they charge quite a lot of money to do similar things under a, a quite a different guise. Now, what's interesting is we've got a similar set of core techniques of the body, care of the self, being bifurcated, separated into, on one hand, the scientific evidence-based uh, healthcare practice. And on the other hand, we have a unchecked, unregulated, untested set of wellness industry practices. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about Gwyneth Paltrow uh, and her fondness of, of things like vaginal steaming uh, as, as one example. Uh, it's actually, it's, it's interesting that if we take the example of vaginal steaming, in the medieval period, there was the idea that a woman's uterus could wander freely around the body and that this, you know, this was a bad thing. And in order to, to restore the uterus back to its rightful 
you know, home in the body, that the wise practitioners would would treat the woman with sweet smells um, around the vaginal area and bad smells to the nose in order to sort of encourage the uterus away from the upper part of the body and back to its, its rightful place where the pleasant smells would be wafting. Now, of course, this is absolute madness. I mean, it's, it's quite fun. Uh, but the wellness industry, led by the likes of, of, of Gwyneth Paltrow, celebrity, who people trust is taking practice and doing something deeply strange to it. So, so these conspiracy theories, as you're pointing out, as a form of pseudoscience, these these are flourishing as well, and I, I think it's a fascinating phenomenon. What have you found surprising in your research adventures so far? Do you know, Andy? I'm I'm surprised and shocked every day of my life. But the work on conspiracy theories surprises me. Every day, because I, I, I'm I'm just sort of shocked and deeply troubled at the general lack of trust in so many institutions, political health institutions that have been trusted for for a long time, and I think that the current infodemic, coupled with this tendency towards scepticism, a belief in nefarious power and a kind of a fragmentation of knowledge is something that's going to be around for a long time. And I think it's something that politicians and educators and science and health practitioners, I think all of these people are going to have to learn to deal with this. I think there's definitely a swell of distrust there of traditional institutions, but also under the guise of civil liberties, People are suggesting that COVID is just a, a fake laboratory thing that's gone wild and that they have the right not to bend to the virus and to sensible public health measures, which I also find a bit disturbing. So no wonder you're disturbed every day. I think that one of the issues which I have, again, found surprising is the manner in which a number of groups in the United States and indeed the President of the United States have almost attempted to address the virus as if it were a human agency. That is to say, come on, enough is enough, right? And and, and I've heard people speaking to the virus in those terms as if we could socially construct or, or use language to get ourselves out of this situation, when in reality, this is deeply indicative of human connection to other species and to the natural world. And in that sense, I think it betrays a lack of thinking skills, which exhibit this human exceptionalism that we exist in a separate world, sealed off from from nature. And I think that's another thing which we're going to have to deal with is the deep interconnections to other species and and the earth and the sites around us, uh, which of course is, 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 is deeply ingrained in the cosmology of the First Nations in, in this country. Uh, and I think that's imp- an important thing that we consider. I think that's really spot on because it is odd to watch the Americans negotiate with the virus as if it's a civil liberty issue that's infringing on their lifestyle, and yet it's a public health issue and, as you say, an issue of the natural world, which we seem to have become distant from. Robin, next time we smell a conspiracy theory, what would you like us to think? (laughs) 
Well, yes, you've done your research, Andy. I'm, I'm very interested in the role of smell in, in society. Um, and one of the interesting things, of course, about smell, is, as, as Marcel Proust pointed out, was its ability to immediately transport us to other times and, and places. Smell seems to operate on our minds uh, and, and, and the nose is linked to parts of the mind that uh, function, you know, b- before cognition begins, you know. On, uh, so, so I suppose that the thing we have to do is learn to follow our noses and, and to, to smell a rat when, when there is a rat and to trust instinct. Dr. Robin Canniford, thank you very much. My pleasure, Andy. Nice to talk to you. Thank you to Dr. Robin Canniford, Senior Lecturer in Management and Marketing, Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on May 28, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.